Okay, everybody just sit there for a minute. Let me look at you. <laughs> okay, most of you are in the right place. I, I, could, I could see that. <laughs> As uh, Pastor Ben said, it's, uh, it's been, well, it's been a long time since I've been able to visit with you. And those of you who remember, um, it was four years ago that Pastor Tim went through his uh, heart valve replacement and... Uh, I was able to, to be blessed by you for, what, almost an entire year uh, as um, I was able to um, stand behind this sacred desk and preach the word, and it's so good to be back with you again. I, yeah, it just brings me almost to tears because I realize that four years is, I mean, to God it's nothing, right? Because he, he thinks in terms of eternity. And um, for me, it's just, and also for Shirley, she's with me. As a matter of fact, I've got a family on the whole row there. I've got my daughter, Shannon, son-in-law, Steve, and the grandchildren, uh, Ryan, Hannah, Annika, and Katie. And so good to see all of you here, so... Um, I hope that I don't disappoint you uh, this, this afternoon, <laughs> this morning. <laughs> I'm, I'm speaking to my family at this, uh, so no, I'm just kidding. Well, um, I do understand that you have been in 1 Samuel, and uh, I would like to get right to his word this morning. Um, there is nothing disappointing about the word of God, is there? So please, if you will, open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 16, chapter 16. As you do uh, that, let me do a little review to establish the context for today's message. As far back as chapter 13, God made it clear to King Saul, the king of Israel at that time, that because of his foolish disobedience, his rule over Israel would not endure. I'm going to read just two verses from there. Don't turn there. Keep yourself at 16 there. Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. This, of course, was after his event with the Philistines, Saul's event with the Philistines. You have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom of Israel forever. But now... Your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought but for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. What hard words those must have been for Saul to hear. But as far back as that chapter, some three chapters prior to this, God made it clear that King Saul's kingdom would not endure. By divine intervention, which is the title of our message this morning, by divine intervention, God would replace him with another king, one whose greatest desire was to reflect God's character and his will in his life and service. That divine intervention begins right here in chapter 16. Last week in chapter 15, under Pastor Ben's um, preaching, you studied yet another reason for Saul's disqualification. God gave Saul a very clear mission. Do you remember that? 
He was to completely destroy the Amalekites who had caused much grief to Israel in years past. And in response, Saul only half fulfilled that mission. He spared Agag, the Amalekite king, and the choicest of the animals and goods. He justified that by saying that they were for sacrifice to the Lord. Samuel then confronted Saul about his disobedience, to which Saul responded by blaming, do you remember who? The people. They did it. Samuel then announced the consequences of Saul's disobedience. He said to him, in, back in verse 22 of chapter 15, to obey is better than sacrifice. And because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And then he repeated that again just a couple of verses later in 26, saying, you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And then the chapter ends with Samuel slaying Agag, the Amalekite king, something that Saul should have done, and then returning to Ramah, grieving over Saul's disobedience. Remember that? At that point... We understand that God's intervention was desperately needed in Israel. He, God had a plan for his people, and it wasn't being carried out. Instead of being faithful, Saul was an ineffective king. And not only was he disobedient, he, he just made a lot of bad decisions. He was a weak leader. He failed to meet Israel's need by building strong unity among his people, and he lacked self-control, but by far his worst characteristic was his insubordinate heart toward God. And Samuel worked hard to keep Saul on track, but the bottom line is that Saul did not have a heart for God. That is so much in contrast with what this chapter has to teach us. So Samuel announced God's judgment, and he grieved over Saul's failure. As we move on now into chapter 16, we see God begin to fill, fulfill his promise to remove Saul and to replace him with a man, can you say it with me, after his own heart, yeah, a man named David. By this action, God will radically change the fame and the fortunes of Israel as David goes on from this point to become an unforgettable Old Testament patriarch. The point of all of this is that God is always pleased and can do much with someone whose heart belongs entirely to him. That is the big idea of what we will be speaking about this morning. God is pleased and can do much with someone whose heart is entirely his. Essentially, the chapter divides in, uh, clearly and uh, cleanly into two parts. And as Pastor Ben said, we're going to take uh, a few sections at a time as we work our way through this. But these two parts 
consist, number one, of the rise of David, and number two, the decline of Saul. The rise of David takes place in verses 1 through 13. The decline of Saul takes place, uh, takes place in verses 14 to 23. Now, in the rise of David, uh, that section, there are two things that we want to see. The first is God's commission to the prophet Samuel in verses 1 through 5. I'm going to read that. Follow with me. I'm going to begin. I'm reading from the New American Standard. If you don't have that, if you have the ESV standard uh, um, translation, that's okay. But we're going to, it'll probably be up on, on the boards here, on the screens. Verse 1. Now, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. But Samuel said, how can I go? When Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And you shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you, must, what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one whom I designate to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and came to Bethlehem. And the leaders of the city came trembling to meet him and said, Do you come in peace? And he said, In peace I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. He also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Well, as we can see, God did not hesitate long in replacing Saul, he, or beginning that replacement process. He immediately charged Samuel to proceed with what we would call a secret meeting or a secret anointing. It, uh, this is actually the first of three anointings that David will experience in his complete rise to the throne. This is the first. The second one is over in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 4, where he was anointed by the men of Judah in Hebron. And then later in 2 Samuel 5, verse 4, or 3, he was uh, anointed once again, but this time by all the leaders of Israel. And then he completed his ascendancy, um, and that completed his coronation. So he goes through a process of three. But this one that we just uh, are, are looking at here is uh, probably the most, not probably, it is the most important because in contrast to Saul, David was solely God's choice. Back in chapter 12, the prophet Samuel presented Saul to the people when he was anointed as king. And he said to the people, here is the king whom you have chosen. Here, God said, as we read, this is the king I have selected for myself. It was a secret anointing because of the vicious jealousy of Saul, as we read through the passage. Even Samuel was afraid to fulfill his commission because of fear of being killed by Saul. But it was totally valid because of Samuel's prophetic credentials. Now, the second point we need to see in these verses is the David's actual anointing. So if you will look with me, we're going to start at verse 6 and read through 13. 
Then it came about when they entered that he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearances, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Next, Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus, Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, are these all the children? And he said, there remains yet the youngest. And behold, he is tending sheep. Then Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, that means fair-skinned, with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward, and Samuel arose and went to Ramah. His commission had been fulfilled. Interesting. David may have only been a shepherd boy, but he had a heart that above all other things was totally devoted to God. And that qualified him more than anything else to be used by the Lord. It's so clear in Scripture, but it bears repeating that it's not how a person looks on the outside. It is the inner qualities of the heart that make all the difference. Things like sincerity and uncompromising faithfulness to God and his ways. David later reflected these qualities onto his son Solomon. It's recorded in 1 Chronicles 28, but listen to his words when when he was speaking to his son. He said, as for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart, an uncompromising heart and a willing mind. Why? Because the Lord searches all hearts and and he understands every intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you for Forever. These are powerful words, are they not? This is our omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God, all in this short passage. This is a God who sees everything in the heart. He knows, as the scripture says, the word that's on your, on your mouth before you even speak it. This is the God who sees inside each one of us, who knows us better than we know ourselves. This is the God who searches our hearts to miss nothing. And this is the God who then understands every intent of every thought that we have. 
David understood that and he passed it on to Solomon. And Solomon took those, those words of encouragement and, and those words of, of illumination and he took them and he, 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 in concert with David's effort, took Israel to its glory days. Recorded in 1 Kings. If you seek him, he will let you find him. He's not a hidden God. He wants to be known. But if you forsake him, he will reject you. How long? Forever. Powerful words, and, and yet they are so universally true. Second Chronicles 16.9 tells us, this was Hanana speaking to Asa the king, and he said, the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. No room for self. It's all his. We give ourselves to him. He wants all of our heart. He doesn't want a part of it or a piece of it. He wants it all. So we discover that, that David is an intense God lover. And as you read through all the rest of First and Second Samuel, and, and I've done that I, over this past year, um, led a Bible study where we went through the entire book of First and Second Samuel uh, over 45 weeks of teaching, and oh my goodness, the scriptures just come alive. Old Testament comes alive. It's not some dusty old testament. It comes alive in your life when you see principles like this emerge because they are so universally true. But as you read through all of both of these books, First and Second Samuel, you discover that he was not a perfect man by far, was he? He was entirely human. He was hampered by weaknesses that were counterparts to his strength. But overall, Scripture paints a picture of a man with an outstanding and courageous and generous character. He was warm-hearted, outgoing, and he so much appreciated other people. He was, moreover, a man who really inspired loyalty from others. And with the help of those others, his supporters, he accomplished so much for the nation. He established Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. He unified that nation. He pulled them into one people, and he established even their borders. He built a strong army that never lost a battle. And he formed a royal court to administrate the land under his direction. But by far, my friends, by far, the greatest attribute of David was his radical, deep-seated love for God. And for that, as we read, God's Spirit came powerfully and permanently upon him and caused him to be known as God's greatest king, Israel's greatest king. Jesus is God's greatest king, but, Israel, but David was Israel's greatest king. Think about this. From a lowly, young shepherd boy to a king, solely on the basis of his heart for God. Do you see a spiritual lesson here for yourself? Oh, we may never be kings or rulers of any kind, but we can know the favor of God who sees a heart 
that pursues, that never stops chasing that knowledge of our God and his will for our lives. That's what God wants from us more than anything else. Because it leads to so much victory over the enemy. He wants a heart like David's. Why? Because it glorifies him first. And it leads to contentment in us. And you would ask, how does it lead to contentment in us when I'm pursuing this um, unqualified heart for the Lord? Well, it's because when you do that, you realize who God is. And you realize that how you realize that He has created us. He has given us a purpose in life, which is just that, to love Him with uh, an undivided heart. That's why you're here. You know, some of the greatest questions that mankind has asked himself over the centuries has been, what am I doing here? Why am I here? Well, God said very clearly through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 43, verse 21, he said, and the, the people whom I formed for myself will declare my praise. That's why we're here. That's why, you're, that's why you exist. That's why I exist. We are here to worship the Lord, to give him glory. Where did I come from? Well, he created us for that purpose. So that's why I'm here. I'm here to declare his praises. Where am I going when I die? Well, that depends, doesn't it? Do you have that undivided heart for God? That gives us this contentment that you can't find to this degree anywhere else under any other, any other reason. There it is. That's what it is. what God wants from us more than anything else, a heart like David. Now, alternatively, and it's in vivid contrast, the second half of this chapter records the beginning of Saul's decline. David is on the rise. Saul is on the decline. Look at verse 14 with me. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Saul's servants then said to him, Behold, now an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you. Let them seek a man who is a skillful player on the harp, and it shall come about when the evil spirit from God is on you, that he shall play the harp with his hand, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me now a man who can play well, and bring him to me. Then one of the young men answered and said, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is a skillful musician a mighty man of valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech, meaning he knew when and how to speak, what to say, and a handsome man, and the Lord is with him. So Saul sent messengers to Jesse and, and said, send me your son David who is in the flock. And Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread and a jug of wine and a young goat, and he sent them to Saul by David his son. Then David came to Saul and attended him, and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. 
And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David now stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. And so it came about, whenever the evil spirit from God came to Saul, David would take the harp and play it with his hand, and Saul would be refreshed and be well, and the evil spirit would depart from him. Uh, This passage is sometimes referred to as the war of spirits. Why? Because David's spirit-filled music ministry overcame Saul's evil spirit. That should be good news for the worship team, huh? <laughs> Actually, it should be good, good news to all of us. Because the worship that we have here is so God-centered and it's so designed to, to take us vertical before anything else. And when it takes us vertical, it takes our eyes off of ourselves and it puts our eyes on the Lord and we are able to loose ourselves in, 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 in worship that you can't find uh, any other way. It's really illustrated well here through David's ministry. Uh, I would say also that this section has caused some confusion among Bible readers for another reason. And it begs the question, well, wait a minute, how is it that a good and righteous God sends an evil spirit into Saul in the first place? This doesn't sound like my God. Well, as Luther said, who do you say it to? Uh, Erasmus. Uh, your um, thoughts of God are way too human. Erasmus, your, your thoughts of God are way too human. Erasmus was a Christian, but he was a humanist Christian. I'm not sure what that means. I've tried to find out, but it's hard to determine. But the point that Luther said was very important. Erasmus, your thoughts of God are way too human. And so we ask this question because it does come to mind because that's who we are. We are humans. But I want, I want to read you something from Kyle and Delich, a, a very reliable Old Testament commentary. And they really clarified this when they, when they said this, and this is a quote. The evil spirit from Jehovah, which came into Saul in the place of the spirit of Jehovah, was not merely an inward feeling of depression at the rejection announced to him, which grew into melancholy and occasionally broke out in fits, uh, passing fits of insanity, but it was a higher evil power that took possession of him and not only deprived him of his peace of mind, but stirred up the feelings, ideas, imagination, and thoughts of his soul to such an extent that at times it drove him even into madness. Never the spirit of Jehovah because that is the spirit proceeding from the holy God which works upon men as the spirit of strength and wisdom and knowledge and generates and fosters the spirit and it fosters divine life. What's the, what, am I, what, we're, what are we trying to say here? It, the spirit of the Lord is not the same as the spirit from the Lord. And we should not be surprised that God uses evil at times to accomplish his purposes. Why does he do that? He does it to show us how far the heart of man can fall away from God and how decadent that can manifest itself in our daily behaviors. That's why. Jeremiah 17, 9, does this passage sound familiar? 
The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately, yeah, wicked, sick. Who can understand it? You will discover that as you work through these next chapters of 1 Samuel, and you will see that desperate wickedness that takes place in the mind and the, and the, and the heart and the actions of, of Saul. Scripture is clear that God, in his sovereign judgment, recompenses consequences for wrongdoing and unfaithfulness. It is an aspect of his holiness and his justice. He can do no other. He is that pure. He is absolutely pure. Holy, righteous, and just, he must do what he has to do in order to bring about his perfect purposes in the world. On the one hand, God said to Israel, Ah, I have loved you with an everlasting love, Jeremiah 31.3. On the other, he has also said, He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, Exodus 34.7. That's sobering, isn't it? But it makes us realize and it reminds us once again that God is far different than we are in his holiness and his justice and his perfection. In Isaiah 45, verse 6, God said, there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Oh, how often we tend to take him off of his throne and the world encourages us to put other more temporal things in its place. Finishing that verse, the Lord said, I am the one forming the light and creating the darkness. Something that uh, we find a difficult thing to do because he's a creator God. I mean, have you ever tried to ex nihilo create something? Have you ever tried to create something from nothing? Go home and try it. God does these kinds of things. That's how marvelous and wonderful he is. I'm the one forming the light. I'm the one forming the darkness. I'm the one causing well-being, he said, and creating calamity all for his perfect purposes. I am the Lord, he said, who does all of these things. In Isaiah 31, 2, um, it tells us that God is wise and he will arise upon the house of the evildoer. Lamentations 3.38 says, he, is it not, it's a question, is it not from the mouth of the Most High, the El Elyon God, that both good and ill go forth? Holy and holiness and, and, and righteousness are, are characterizations. They are the virtues. They are the, they are the operations of God's righteous sovereignty in the world. Job 23 said, he is unique. Who can turn him and what his soul desires? That's what he does. Psalm 101 verse 19 says, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. I don't find anything unclear about that, do you? Psalm 115, very much like it. Verse 3 says, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. These are all characteristics of our God. And we should always remember, we should always remember that no matter what the circumstances in our lives seem to be, according to our narrow and limited perspective, 
His sovereignty is always working out his grand plan of the ages, and it's always with two things prominently in his mind and heart. Number one, the exaltation of his glory. That's number one. But secondly, the good of all of those who love him, whose heart is committed to him unreservedly, like David's, and who know that they are called according to his purposes and not our own. You know, we should not miss the fact that the God of the Bible wasn't Saul's God. Back in chapter 15, when Samuel rebuked him for not destroying uh, the Amalekite animals and King Agag, Agag, Saul said to him, I did this, Samuel, so we could worship your God. He did it again in verse 30 when he asked Samuel to honor him before all the people. He said, would you go back with me, Samuel, so that I can worship the Lord, your God. According to Saul, he was Samuel's God, not his. In contrast to that, and in contrast to David, Saul rejected God, so true to his word, God rejected him. Saul's days are numbered. And as he goes into decline, and David, a man after God's heart, rising up, begins to replace him through divine intervention. We find a lot of action going on in this chapter. But what's the big idea? It's this. God's approval falls on those whose hearts are entirely his. That's the challenge for us this morning. Are our hearts entirely his? How does this apply? First of all, it does little good to say you are a Christian if you are not a Christian. And back to our passage, historically, the reason that David was chosen by God here was to establish a royal line of succession that would end at Jesus Christ, the King of all kings, the Savior of the world, and the one whose death on a cross for our sins we accept by faith to gain the forgiveness of God and acquire the blessed gift of fellowship with him forever. What could be better than that? That's an eternal destiny that will never be taken from you. Jesus said, all that the Father has sent to me will come to me and I will never cast any one of them out. But we also understand that, that we all fall short of the glory of God, do we not? We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, yet in Romans 6.23 it is said to us, but the free gift of God is eternal life through, the Lord, through Christ Jesus our Lord. It is by faith that we gain God's approval. By faith. You know, commonly speaking, faith is belief in him that is so complete. We're talking again about the heart. It leads to a total trust from a heart of love, which in turn results in obedience to the truth of his word worked out in our lives by the power of his spirit. Don't you love that? It's, it's, it's the greatest formula you'll ever hear. Pythagoras had nothing on this. You know, in that, you will not be disappointed. If you haven't taken that important step, I pray that you would make that commitment today. 
It does little good to say you are a Christian if you are not really a Christian. By faith in God through Jesus Christ and living in obedience to his word. Second, as a Christian, we must be sure that we understand the nature of our God, which we discussed this morning. He is incomprehensible in his majesty, but he is not unknowable. And that's not a contradiction. He is incomprehensible in his greatness, but we can know him. What the mind cannot completely comprehend, the heart can still love. And that's our God. He is tangibly present in the world and he's tangible in our hearts with his goodness. That's what makes him God and we submit to that. Third, when we are totally devoted to God, our hearts are like reservoirs. They're filled to the full with his powerful and his loving presence. There is no longer any room for self in there. No room for self-will. Why? Because you're filled up with the fullness of God. There's no room for yourself. We understand that we've been bought with a price, the precious blood of the Lord Jesus, and we no longer in any respect belong to ourselves. That's scripture. We belong entirely to him. That's what John meant when he said in John 1.16 that for of his fullness we have received grace upon grace, love upon love upon love, filling us up. The Greek word is pleurothomai. It means to be overflowing with the love of God and the presence and the power of God. And it flows out over a picture of a glass of water and you're pouring in a big pitcher of water far bigger than the glass and the water comes up and a spills over and it starts flooding out and it starts to affect everything around you. It gets everything wet with the... I mean, the Holy Spirit was often represented as water, was he not? That's how it works. And that's how our hearts should be totally and completely and undividedly devoted to our God. That's what Paul meant when he prayed that we should be filled up to all of the fullness of what? Of God. Ephesians 3.19. See, that's what God is seeking. And that's what it means to be a person after God's own heart. And as we said earlier, God's approval falls on those whose hearts are entirely His. I don't know about you, but I love being possessed by God. I do. I don't like being possessed by me. <laughs> I think back upon my life, and by the way, I'm going to be enjoying, you know, my 70th birthday this year. And I look back on the previous 69 years, and I think, oh, man. I think about that time when I decided to give my heart entirely to God, and I'm so glad I did because it was a mess before that. Maybe I, maybe I didn't look that way on the outside, but in the inside, don't we all have that corrupt heart? We're born with it. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I did come to that point when I gave it to him. I began to learn from him. As the saying goes, I began to know my God, and then I began to surrender to him, and more and more and more. You know, I found out, probably you have too, that he can do a better job running my life than I can. Have you ever discovered that? But you see, that's what it means to have a heart, a Davidic heart, that David's heart. 
that heart that is entirely undivided and devoted to God. That's what it means to be a, a person after God's own heart. I, I hope this has been illuminating to you this morning. I'd like to pray as the worship team comes up and um, we'll have a closing song. Pray, if you will, just bow your heads with me for the moment. And God, we, we pray as, uh, at this time, at the close of, of explaining your word and enjoying your word and being saturated with it. We, we do pray, Lord, right now by this same divine intervention that as we pause to contemplate uh, our lives and, and those things that gain your approval as well as those things that disturb your grace, that you would search our hearts. Father, reveal to us anything that characterizes that defiant or self-serving heart. Reveal it, Lord. Some of us may know it already. Some of us may not even know those areas where we're being rebellious. But you can reveal it to us by the power of your Spirit. But we ask for more than that, Lord. We ask that you would cause us to agree with its presence. We're not approving of it, but we're agreeing that it's there. We ask that by your Spirit we would despise those things which are defiant, rebellious, self-serving. And that we would repent from it. That we would turn from it. There are so many things that beset us in this world. Things that keep us from loving you with unrestricted fervor. That Davidic heart. And being filled with the, to the fullness with the power of the Spirit. Father, we pause just for a moment. And as we search our hearts, Lord, may your Spirit... Identify, illuminate those things that we can bring before you. We confess it to you, Lord. We turn from it. In this time of worship... Lord God, accept our commitment and perseverance to be a people unified in our desire to have a heart like David's, a heart that loves you, desires your influence in our lives every day. And we would ask these things in the loving and precious and powerful name of the Lord Jesus, Holy God. Amen. Amen.